Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're tuning into an episode of the Redefining Society podcast, hosted by Marco Ciappelli. Let's face it, the future is now. We live in a hybrid analog digital society, and we must stop ignoring it or pretending that technology is not affecting us. The line between the physical and virtual worlds has become a figment of our imagination. On it, we are continually performing a dangerous balancing act, juggling convenience, privacy, freedom, security, technology, society, culture, and even the future of humanity. There is no better place than here, and no better time than now to muse on our relationship with technology and how to redefine what society means in this new age. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marco Ciappelli. Welcome to another episode of Redefining Society podcast. Uh, and uh, today we're going to talk about a, an industry, let's call it an industry, an area that uh, I haven't actually discussed uh, in terms of what is happening to that profession and uh, generative AI. As you know, we talk about generative AI a lot. And uh, you can be sure that it is affecting many area and the legal ecosystem is most certainly one of those. I gotta be honest, I don't know much about it. I have some ideas in my mind on the way that it can affect it. But when I saw this book and I heard about our guest today, Colin Levy, I was really excited to be the one that is the person that doesn't know anything about that in the room and ask a lot of questions. So <laughs> I'm excited for this conversation. Colin, welcome to the show for everybody that is just listening and they haven't seen you on the video yet. Thanks for having me as a guest. I'm excited about this conversation. Yeah. So let's start. I can think about so many different things that can happen. I, I had a conversation about movie and artists and, and copyrights and how artificial intelligence is getting in, into privacy. So I, I can always see the legal aspect of thing, but not being a lawyer, not being in that industry. I would like to get a point here, an overview of what does this mean for our um, for our society, obviously, and the way we deal with the legal system. So. Before we go there, let's start with you, who is Colin, a little background about yourself. Sure. I'm Colin Levy. I am a um, the author of The Legal Tech e Ecosystem, which came out in October. I am a lawyer. I've been a lawyer now for over 11 years. Um, I keep losing track of how many years it's been. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> so much. <laughs> so much has happened over the years. 
primarily focused in the tech industry. And that in turn prompted me to want to learn more about legal tech and then write the book, um, introducing the reader to this wondrous evolving world where tech and law meet. I also am frequently asked to write or speak or both about that evolving relationship and its impacts upon both the business and practice of law. Perfect. So you, you are an expert in all the things that I'm interested in. Let's start with something that maybe goes back before you were a lawyer. Were you always interested in technology? Is that why you decided to kind of focus on that aspect of things with your profession? So it's a funny story, actually, because when I was younger, I feared technology. I saw it as intrusive. I saw it as annoying. I saw it as clunky and hard to use. But I also accepted it as something that was here to stay, so I had better get used to it and adapt. And over time, I then learned how useful technology can be, how much more accessible it has become. And that prompted me to want to learn more about its impacts upon all aspects of society. And then eventually, as I decided to pursue becoming a lawyer and then started practicing law, I really was interested in First of all, why the legal industry seemed to kind of consider itself immune to the dynamics of the world, and more specifically, why it seemed to act as if technology had no part to play in the practice and business of law. And I thought, well, surely I can't be the only person who sees this massive disconnect. And as it turns out, I wasn't the only person who saw this disconnect and was trying to do something about it, which prompted me to engage with some of those folks, learn from them. And then as I learned more, started to share what I was learning with others, which really kind of jump-started my journey into the legal tech world. So more and more, just following to what you say, kind of like this resistance, I, I just wrote a piece for my newsletter last night, actually. I don't know when this is going to air, but people can check it out about how I was talking about the myth of Prometheus and the fire, and I was comparing it to generative AI with the idea of then the risk of being punished for spilling the technology flame to humanity, but also the idea of not refusing it without knowing it with the fear of the unknown. It's probably the worst thing that we could do with that. So we need a balance. and. With the fact that now every business, I, I don't know if you agree with this, but for me, is every business is a technology business in a way or in another. So obviously business and individual needs lawyer. So I, I don't know. How do you think people thought about resisting and being immune off the grid, let's say, <laughs> about technology in your profession? It's hard to believe. Hard to believe, and yet at the same time, in some ways, it's not necessarily that hard to believe because um, as someone who was taught at a traditional law school in the U.S., had a, you know, what it was to think and be a lawyer, the legal industry, at least in the U.S., has very much, at least historically, been tied down to tradition, how things have been done in the past. And in many ways, my law school experience felt like a three-year degree in legal history rather than a three-year degree in what it was and what it is to be a lawyer. And so, you know, for that reason, I understand this, uh, the resistance that has existed to technology and the um, desire to not adapt. And yet at the same time, 
technology continues to evolve. It doesn't really care about your feelings about it. It doesn't really have an agenda other than the agenda of those who create these technologies and bring them about upon the world. So I think, you know, if you want to resist technology, um, that's your choice and that's fine. But, you know, you likely will be best served, you know, living as a loner in the woods, frankly, um, which, again, there are some people who are happy with that. But I and I think many others who seek to be professionals in society today need to recognize that, to your point, technology is everywhere, is impacting everything and everyone in different ways. And so to ignore is kind of at your peril and detriment. Yes. Can you give me and the audience a couple of examples of that are relevant for understanding how technology and, and legal ecosystem are intertwined and you can't ignore it? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, now there are legal departments that have automated the uh, creation of documents, automated the review of documents, both automated both of those things meaning that now they're not the ones doing that initial tactical work. It's actually technology doing it, which means that they're now able to save time and spend that time on actually negotiating or handling other more tricky matters where a larger degree of human judgment is required rather than these time-consuming, repetitive, routine tasks that are very easily automated and done well. Um, in addition, we've seen the rise of legal operations, which itself I think would not exist but for, in some ways, the rise of technology and the need for people who can kind of translate and be the bridge between the business, the tech and the legal world. And so these folks in legal operations are invaluable because they're the ones who are helping to evaluate technologies, evaluate processes and help align processes and technology together with the needs of the business so that business can move forward in a seamless way with all the functions that power the business operating on the same level and aligned with the needs of one another. Yeah, that makes sense. So I can see, and like these in other profession, I, I had this conversation about generative AI and AI in the medical field, for example, uh, very similar to what you said in terms of resistance and a traditional kind of way to look at the profession, but also the incredible benefit that you get by using AI for the patient and for managing the incredible amount of data that you're dealing with. But there are certain things that we all agree, probably from an ethical perspective, that we, we may consider not to use. So as you embrace and the legal, um, the legal industry embrace the AI, and as you say, they're using it, do you see some that is a big no, like don't go there kind of tools that maybe not the right thing to do? Well, I think context is really important here. So I wouldn't be hesitant to say yay or no or nay outright to any particular tool. However, I think that it's super important to be aware of the of a few things. One, that we're still in very the very early stages of artificial intelligence, at least in terms of its accessibility stage, i.e. generative AI that is used by a lot of people. And so because of that, it still has limits, it still is imperfect. And it still can't do everything well. It can do some things kind of well, can do other things, you know, fairly poorly, and it can do something somewhere in between of those two. And so I think it's important to just be aware of the fact that 
while AI continues to evolve and get better, you know, it's going to require exper experimentation and iterating upon what you're doing with it to get better at using it and figuring out how it best can help you. At the same time, I think, you know, you don't want to ignore, but you need to be aware of its benefits and limitations. And with respect more specifically to the legal space, I think that a lot of these tools can be useful for summarizing documents and even potentially reviewing documents. But again, you want to be careful with what you sh information you share because of concerns around confidentiality and who's actually looking at the information you sh share with these solutions. And in addition, as we've seen, you know, most of these commonly accessible tools are not trained exclusively on legal data or even a lot of legal data. So there is definitely a tendency and the potential for it to provide you with inaccurate data that it see that could seemingly be accurate, but it isn't. For example, we've seen lawyers who have used it to dra help draft briefs and it's come up with cases that you would think could possibly be real, but aren't. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's, you know, just a, emblematic of their limitations currently. But in addition, it's also emblematic of the fact that as users of these technologies, it's incumbent upon all of us to double check the work that is produced because the fake cases that were created were not a function of the technology doing something it shouldn't have done. It, was, it did exactly what it was asked to do, but it was up to you to double check to make sure that, okay, these cases, are they real or are they not? So that's more, I think, of an issue of competence than it is of a technology gone astray. Yeah, you certainly don't want to have some uh, generative AI hallucination when you're presenting a case or when you're judging a case. And I'm going to go right there. So one of the things that we learn, I think that makes common sense, actually, it should be common sense, is that you don't want to let the AI decide automatically for you when it comes to people's life. So from an ethical, philosophical perspective, giving a loan to someone, yes or not, is definitely good to have a person, a human being reviewing that or even a committee. Same thing for other kind of decision. Now, the biases that have been used, that have been found in the way that we data to train generative AI, you ref you're bringing that back into the loop. So there is hallucination. There are probably a lot of books that may not be legal, but transform into legal, as you say, by the AI. But also, it's data that, and tell me if I'm wrong, it's not necessarily taken in the specific context of academic and judicial and review type of documents. And even if it is, it's not just for the United States. Different law in different states, in the US, different experience from other countries in the world, minority cases that may, again, be not the one that you want to get an inspiration from. How do you handle this? So I'm, I'm looking a little more of a macro level of society, where if every lawyer gets into that, and then every judge, every court start to doing that. I can see a little bit of a chaos if we don't have a guardrail. So um, big question, I guess. You can address what side you want. I, I know I kind of made very generic. Yeah, I, you know, I think that your question points to this uh, increasingly important issue and one that I think has been of increased focus both 
by the EU as well as the US and likely other jurisdictions, which is the fact that as these technologies evolve and as they exist now, there's a strong need for there to be guardrails, as you said, with respect to their usage. Now, of course, the big challenge is, well, what should their guardrails be? How should they be enforced? How do we manage to balance the need for guardrails without stifling the creativity of people and the ingenuity of people when it comes to creating new AI solutions? And I think generally speaking, you know, you want to look at it from a perspective of utility in terms of its usefulness to people and also the context in terms of what the solution is going to be used for. For example, it's going to be used in a health context, you know, to analyze data, then you want to have pretty strong guardrails around its usage and have it double checked, you know, multiple times and so on. If it, however, if it's, you know, to be used for, you know, summarizing a basic document or, you know, looking at two different documents and then crafting, you know, an article or something, I don't think you need as stringent guardrails for that type of use case. So I think, you know, the other additional challenge here is that I'm not sure one size fits all solution with guardrails makes a whole lot of sense. I think that you have to come up with guardrails that are flexible and also that are adaptable, meaning that certain guardrails apply for certain circumstances, whereas others apply for other circumstances. And that's challenging to do. But at the same time, I think, you know, we've been around technology long enough to kind of be aware of kind of where, you know, stringent, more stringent guardrails make sense, you know, someone's health, someone's, you know, something that could dra dramatically impact their life in some per uh, permanent way, as opposed to, you know, some kind of basic task that likely wouldn't impact anyone in any kind of detrimental way. But if it were to go wrong, that'd be a problem, but it will, would be one you could fix fairly easily. So I think that just points to the fact that there needs to be some nuance here and you have to kind of approach it from a practical as well as a pragmatic perspective. Makes sense. And I think that I'm thinking the guardrail here are, it could be also very specific to the profession. So what I'm thinking is, do you think there should be a regulation almost like a FDA approved <laughs> pharmaceutical uh, solution or drug to say, okay, this can go to the market and can be used. And I'm, and I'm making that reference to you guys in the legal system, you need to use tools that are fit to this, not, I don't know, thinking open source versus a, like a product that is reviewed and really known to be privacy. I, mean, I know you work a lot in cybersecurity too, if I remember well from your bio. So all the security, privacy issue controls that you may have in order to know that, okay, this is, it's never a hundred percent the software or the tool, but again, some regulation, what's the role of regulation in this? Yeah. Well, I think we've already seen, um, at least in the US with 40 plus states having this duty of tech competence, meaning that lawyers are now ethically bound to understand the relevant risks and benefits of certain technologies that they may be applicable to their practice and or use cases. Um, and I think that what that points to is a need for, yes, there, there needs to be guardrails that are specifically crafted for certain industries that are more, um, 
impactful upon people in terms of how they operate and, and what they can and can't do. So again, you know, the process of crafting these rules and regulations and guardrails is definitely going to be challenging considering not only do you have to take into account what I've said earlier, but also the fact that these technologies are continuing to evolve. So you need to ensure there's some degree of flexibility and adaptability into these rules and it's developed with the right level of expertise as well, because you don't want people who don't know what they're don't know a lot about what they're regulating to be tasked with regulating these things, because as we've seen in the past, that type of approach tends to lead to overhanded um, regulation and or things that miss the mark. And then you sort of you're left playing catch up. And when it comes to technology, you don't want to be in the position of playing catch up because by the time you have to play catch up, technology is already well past wherever you're trying to catch up to. Yeah. And we are catching up. Let's be honest. There's always that resistance and then everybody jump on the wagon and, uh, and by the, yeah, you're right. By the time you're dead, the train already left the station. So that's where we are right now, I think. Um, let's talk about the book in particular. So who did you write it for? Is it for other legal professionals or for more a larger societal understanding of how one affect the other? And, and why did you decide? write this book what was your spark for that right well i'll start with the second question first i wrote the book because for a couple of reasons one i had always wanted to write a book i just didn't know when where what how etc b writing for me has always been something that has been very therapeutic and very helpful and i've always loved to write and as it happened in 2020, when the world was kind of shut down for the most part, um, I had a little more time on my hands than I imagined. And so I decided to start writing this book with the intent of, I had all these experiences, all this you know material to go off of, having had a lot of conversations with different people in the space, and thought, you know what, I, th I think this book makes sense as a helpful, non-technical, broad, and accessible introduction to the world of legal tech. Because uh, that really is what I have been trying to do largely with, with with my other efforts in the space is to inform and inspire others about legal tech in an accessible way. And so with that in mind, I wrote the book and the book's sort of real intended audience are uh, ideally legal professionals who either are wanting to learn more about legal tech or are just kind of, you know, wanting to learn more about how technology is impacting the law and want to see what they need to know with respect to remaining relevant and valuable. Uh, but, you know, you could also make the case that the book could be for those who are sort of on the outside looking in on tech and or on legal, I should say, um, and are from the tech space, but wanting to know more about how tech is impacting law. So, you know, it's really intended for those audiences. And again, it's something that's really intended to pique your interest and hopefully lead you to want to do more and read more and learn more about things in the space. Right. And it's funny because going back to the point that technology moves so fast, it was only a few days ago that it was the first year anniversary of ChatGPT. And <laughs> I had so many conversations about it that I feel like it's been around forever, almost like the smartphone or, or the computer. And uh, when you wrote, you said you started writing this book, we, we weren't even talking much in, in terms of a commercial use of generative AI. So 
I want to take this opportunity to make you reflect maybe and, and tell me if there is already something that you would change in your book now that a few months gone by. And maybe we then from there we can proceed into a little bit of what I love to do, which is a vision of the future, a little guess, a little time machine travel. So let's start with that. Would you already change something? That you did? So, you know, it's funny as I start writing the book and then probably by the third year of writing it when it was really close, um, I did have to adjust it for the rise of generative AI. I, going forward, you know, looking back on it, would I include more about AI? Potentially, um, you know, I really, one of the things I really intended with the book was to make it as sort of timeless as possible in the sense that it wasn't going to be super outdated by the time it finally arrived, um, which is why I shied away from anything that was still evolving for the most part. That being said, is, you know, certainly would I write more about AI in the book? I think so. And is there a potential for me to write another book that perhaps is a little more AI focused? Yeah, of course. Um, I do love to write. So there definitely is that potential as well. And that's something that I always find exciting about tech in general is that it's always evolving and changing and, um, and challenging our perceptions of kind of what can and can't be done. For sure. And as you say this, it makes me think that I have focused this entire conversation on AI and generative AI, but tech, it's other tools too. So maybe I should go backward a little bit, rewind and, and ask you what other technology in a, in a wider range are you addressing in the book apart from AI and generative AI? Yeah, so I, I address, you know, sort of the, you know, the broad space in terms of automation, managing information, managing documents, um, how to sort of data, use of data, drive analytics and decision-making. Uh, those are some of the things I include in the book. It's really intended again, to kind of give you a little taste of these different areas within legal tech and also give you an idea of how they're all connected to one another. Makes sense in the AI for sure. So, from the past to the present, now let's go our last five minutes or so into the future. What do you see happening? Again, I'm not going to interview you in a year from now and, and pinpoint if you made a mistake in, <laughs> in prediction, but uh, I am very curious. I always put my thinking hat on and uh, yeah, based on what you know, what you see and, uh, and all the conversation that you have, um, I don't even want to put a timeline, but you know, it could be couple of years, which is a long time in technology anyway. Yeah, I think that going forward, we're going to see a increased emphasis on the use of data, um, its collection, its use, its analysis. I think we're going to continue to see AI, particularly generative AI, play a larger and larger role in the automation of not just work tasks, but personal tasks as well in terms of you know, turning lights on and off, managing home security, um, managing power usage in all sorts of different areas. Um, and I think, you know, down the line, we're going to see more sort of tools that automate our daily lives and ask us to, and, and don't require us to do as much manual work um, to extent to which any of us really does any manual work with respect to our personal lives. Um, and we've already started to see, I think, some of that in terms of cars specifically and 
you know, self-driving cars and automated functionality in cars, but there's still a lot, I think, to be worked on in part, given, I think the uh, inconsistency and unpredictability of humans, as well as the fact that, um, you know, any technology is based on a number of different assumptions and those assumptions can sometimes be way off. And sometimes you don't necessarily know what's going to be off until you start testing. Yeah, and, and there is other things that we, we thought probably they were never going to come as an issue, like f fake voices and the way that, you know, again, to go back a little bit into cybercrime, different kind of phishing and, of course, the news and how you're going to handle when there is an entire manipulated video that is created by generative AI. I, I can't even think how much complex must be now to think about regulation and reinventing regulation. And so do you think that the the legal aspect of the, the regulation and making the law that can keep up with the pace of technology, it's feasible? Or, or is there a way, are we going to have generative AI making the laws for us so that we can stay <laughs> ahead of the game? <laughs> well, I think there's always going to be a need for, I think, human judgment in terms of making laws. Um, and when it comes to keeping up with technology, uh, to something you said earlier, I think that uh, rather than trying to keep up, I think a more realistic approach is to always keep it in sight ahead of you because technology is ahead of all of us and it's continuing to be that way. So rather than trying to keep up, which I don't think is necessarily realistic, I think it's more important to just keep in, keep it in sight always ahead of us and be aware of the fact that there's going to, you know, be mistakes along the way, and there's going to be a need for continued experimentation and and learning. Uh, because for all of us, learning, especially when it comes to use of technology, is uh, a lifelong process. In, in other words, it never stops. Yeah. And I, how about um, to finish with? Um, yeah, I just finish with a call for the book. Like, give me an elevator pitch for the book and why people should get it and why it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, um, first of all, the book is very accessible. It's in Kindle, hard copy, and, and soft cover. It's also written from a non-technical background, so it's very accessible. It's an easy read. It has plenty of resources for future reading. And the book really, again, is a high-level non-technical introduction to the world of legal tech and how legal tech and technology is impacting business, people, processes, and how each each one of those things is really interdependent upon one another. And the book really illustrates that through um, quotations from those working at the front lines of the field, as well as my own experience being in the field. And so I really think that people will find it very informative as well as inspiring in a way that makes technology far less intimidating than it might otherwise be. Awesome. I really enjoy this conversation. I think it could be good to have a couple more maybe next year and as we move forward and catch up on where we're moving in with, uh, I know there is already a ChatGPT 4.5 in the beta, so that's going to be fun. So. Colin, I want to thank you so much for this and uh, it opened my mind, which is a good and a bad thing because now I'm going to have that wanted to know more about this um, legal 
and tech aspect of society. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for being part of, of the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation and certainly do help to have more conversations in the future as things evolve. Absolutely. And I know you prefer to be a, a guest than a host. So I'll take that into consideration <laughs> as well. For everybody else, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I think it was understandable for, for everybody, even if you're not a tech expert or a legal expert. And uh, stay tuned. You'll find all the links for the book to connect with Colin in the notes for this podcast or video, depending how you're consuming this. So stay tuned. Subscribe for the Finance Society podcast with me, Marco Ciappelli. Thank you, Colin. It was really great. Thank you. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Society podcast, hosted by Marco Ciappelli. If you learned something new, and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine podcast network with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.